through Paul's letter to the church in Corinth known as 2 Corinthians. If you have a Bible this morning, you'll want to open it up to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. If you're in need of a Bible, right in front of you, in the pews, the black bound book is a Bible, and you can use the index at the front to find 2 Corinthians. We've been looking at this section of 2 Corinthians 5 and 6 with a series we've entitled Changes because it's a pretty good list of the ways that life changes through Jesus Christ. When you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, things change, and we get pretty good reference points and demonstrations of that here in 2 Corinthians 5 and 6. Um, where Paul is at right now in the passage we're about to read together he is trying to explain his ministry to those who shouldn't require explanation. The church in Corinth that he's writing to is a church that Paul planted. He came into this city where there were no Christians, preached the gospel about what God had done in Jesus Christ. People responded to that message, and the church was formed in Corinth. Years later, other people come in, and they put... Uh, they put a wedge between the church and Paul. They question his ministry, his authority, his ability, all of these things, and it gains root in the, uh, the church in Corinth. And so uh, it comes to a head, and when Paul comes to visit, someone in the church, not without uh, support, stands up against Paul to his face. And instead of, as an apostle who planted the church, laying down his authority, he just quietly leaves in the middle of the night, and he writes a letter that we do not have. This letter is the follow-up after that, after the church has responded to these things, and so he's piecing things together, and he's trying to shift their perspective so that they get it, so that they understand that the criticisms these outsiders made of Paul are actually the things that demonstrate that he is truly one of God's apostles. And as he does so, what I want to focus on this morning uh, is how odd the life he lays out is from the life we usually dream of for ourselves. Okay? So with that in mind, let's read together starting in verse 3 of 2 Corinthians chapter 6. We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God with weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. Through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors, yet we are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. Let's pray. God, as we look at Paul's life this morning, uh, it is probably different than ours, but our prayer is that it would be different in gradation and not in kind. Our prayer is that in the same way Paul can point to his life as showing the centrality and the importance of Jesus Christ, as demonstrating the reality of the fact that he is a servant of Jesus, so also our lives would bear that mark. I pray, Lord, that the changes uh, that you constantly spoke of uh, for those who would respond to you, who would believe in you, would be made manifest in our lives by the help of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. 
And so, once again, notice what Paul is doing in this section. Listen to verse 3 again. He says, We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry, but as servants of God we commend ourselves in every way. And so he says, Let's look at my life and let me explain why I do the things I do. You see, the challenges being brought by the enemies of Paul was effectively that he was kind of an embarrassment. He had no real profound rhetorical speaking ability. He was an unimpressive person to look at. Uh, He worked with his hands instead of making a living by his speaking, which in Corinth, where there were lots of public speakers, was shameful and just proved that he wasn't really good at what he did. He uh, suffered everywhere he went. Uh, And so effectively, they, they look at Paul and they just go, he's just not that impressive. Why would you follow someone who's so unimpressive? Do you really want to end up like Paul? But Paul is pointing at this and he's going, actually, this list, these things, these are the evidences that we are the servants of Jesus Christ. He puts it very strongly in his letter to the church in Galatia. He says, I bear in my body the wounds of Christ. If you're familiar with horror films, you know about the stigmata, right? This idea of the wounds of Christ showing up on someone else that's involved in exorcism movies. That's the idea he draws in Galatians. He says, if you want to know that I'm a part of Jesus' ministry, do I not bear wounds just like his? And if you look at his ministry, it's kind of a train wreck. It's filled with destruction and disaster. If you're not familiar, just flip forward a few chapters at another time, not right now, uh, and read chapter 11 of this letter when he finally is brought to just make a list where we find out that he's been whipped five times, 39 lashes apiece, where he's been beaten with rods, where twice he's been stoned, which usually kills you, but he's survived, where he's been shipwrecked three times. And he says, but these things aren't without purpose. It's not just that he's clumsy or unlucky or always finds himself in the wrong place at the wrong time. It's none of those things. What he says here in these opening verses is that he does these things with intention, with purpose. And so there's basically three sections that follow. At first, there's this list where he uses all these words to talk about the difficulties of the life he lives as a Christian. The second thing we see is the character, the things that are important to him. He says things like purity and kindness and the, and the spirit of God and these types of things. And then finally, he lays out these paradoxes, right? As poor but making many rich, as nothing to look at but actually significant, as unknown but actually known. And in doing so, I think he gives us a good inventory to think about how things change. Let me show you what I mean with this first section here. As he makes these lists, he kind of, it almost appears, opens up a thesaurus of suffering, right? He picks quite a few different words to describe what his life is like. But do not forget, these are not just things that happened to the Apostle Paul. They happened with a reason. This list of nine words that all deal with difficulties and suffering are actually three sets of three. I'll show you what I mean. Look at the first three. In afflictions, hardships, and calamities. Okay? All three of those words are related in that they're circumstantial. Okay? Afflictions means things, uh, things that cause pain. Hardship means things that are confusing. Okay? The idea there is being stuck between the proverbial rock and a hard place, difficulties where you're not sure how to proceed, where you feel stuck or trapped, etc. And then finally, um, calamities, uh, which means disasters, okay? What an insurance salesman would call an act of God, okay? Major storms and things like this. But the thing to remember about these first three lists is that Paul could have stayed home, He faced these things because he constantly put himself in the line of danger. Why was he on a ship that got shipwrecked? Because he was preaching in Jerusalem about what Jesus had done, and then he used the word Gentile. 
and the crowd went crazy, responded like a mob, tried to take his life, and so a Roman centurion breaks in, as assumes he's just some sort of terrorist, pulls him in to figure out what's going on, and Paul goes on trial. Now, Paul hasn't actually done anything wrong, but the Jews are so devoted to ending this impact that Paul is making, they come up with a bunch of false charges. But eventually, Paul starts to realize that this court case has an advantage for him. If you read the book of Romans, Paul had always desired to go and preach the gospel in Rome. And he recognizes that this court case isn't going to go his way, but if he, like any Roman citizen can, appeals to Caesar, kind of like we would push things up to the Supreme Court level in our appeals, then he's going to get a free ticket to Rome, which is no small trip. But he does it in chains. And as he does it, the ship is shipwrecked. Why is he doing these things? Because he wants to tell people about Jesus. So the first list is all these things, they're just happenings. But the second list have to do with how other people treat him. Look at the next three terms in verse 5. Beatings, imprisonments, and riots. Do you recognize how those are different than the first list? The first list are things that are, are parts of nature. They're things that are happening. They're circumstantial. But the second one all have to do with how people treated Paul, specifically in the context, how people treated Paul when he did his ministry, when he told them about Jesus, how people directly responded to Paul, okay? And so what do we see here? We see beatings, okay? As I already mentioned, that was a major part of Paul's life. And as a side note, this isn't just a first century Christian reality. This is something that has maintained and sustained throughout the history of the church, I remember when I first became a Christian, reading letters from missionary organizations working in other parts of the world where they trained their missionaries when they came into these completely untouched towns in the midst of the deepest parts of East Asia and some parts of Africa. They trained their missionaries. The first thing they do is dig their own grave. Then they would go in and maintain their ministry. Okay? Did you know that this century, this last one, the 20th century that we just finished, more Christians died for being Christians than all of the rest of church history combined. We can forget these things because we don't experience these things here, but don't think that this is something of the past. He says here beatings, and then he goes on and he points to imprisonments. One of the early church fathers writing just a few years after Paul died, okay, so around 100 AD, says that Paul was imprisoned seven times. We can count three of them recorded in the New Testament. But he was imprisoned seven times, and each time it was for doing this ministry. You see, when we look at these things, the one thing you can't say about Paul was that he was lackadaisical about his Christianity. He was clearly devoted. It was worth going to prison for. It was worth dying for. And side note, eventually, that's exactly what happens. The final time Paul is in prison, you can read a letter he wrote while he was there in 2 Timothy. He stands before Caesar Nero. And if you read the letter, he knows what's coming. That's the letter where he says, I've run the race. I've fought the good fight. He says, I'm ready to go. He looks at his life and he goes, it's over, and that's okay. And he was beheaded. Beatings, imprisonments, and riots. Angry mobs. If you read the book of Acts, you'll find two of these. Okay, One I already mentioned in Jerusalem where he almost loses his life. A second one in Ephesus. And in Ephesus, he's not even originally present for the riot. The riot happens because Paul has made such a significant impact on the city of Ephesus, Ephesus that it's changed their econ wow, so many words, changed their economics. Their economy has shifted. Okay. Ephesus is where the great temple of the goddess Diana was. And so there were silversmiths in Ephesus who made their money selling memorabilia, souvenirs and trinkets of the temple of Diana. But nobody's going 
and the industry is failing, so they have a union of silversmith meeting, and they go, the problem is this guy, Paul. He's come in and told them that Diana is no real God at all, that this Jesus is the real thing, and they believe him, and, and so our industry has shrunk because of it, and so they hire some rabble-rousers to start an angry mob, and the mob spreads into the city, and they fill up the... Uh, fill up this amphitheater, and they're just chanting, great is Diana of the Ephesians, but Luke, our author, tells us that not everybody really knows why they're there. They just get caught up in the moment. What does Paul do when he finds out about it? He goes, I've got to talk to them. He wants to walk center stage into this mob that's angry because of him and address them, and the only reason he doesn't is because his friends restrain him. Look at the last list. Labors, sleepless nights, and hunger. Okay, that last word, hunger, it's the same word used in the New Testament for fasting. So it may be that he had nothing to eat, but it also, and I would say based on the rest of these three items, means that he chose to eat nothing, which is a different thing. So what holds these three together? These three are self-inflicted. Labors means that he bore the pain of hard work. As I mentioned to you earlier, Paul chose, instead of receiving while he was in Corinth, money, even though he maintains in his letter to the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians, that a minister should be paid, that it's appropriate that the church share with the ones who share the gospel with him. He refused that. He wanted them to understand that he wasn't in it for the money, and to make that clear, he gave up all the money said, I'll work with my own hands. I'll build tents for a living. I'll take care of my income. So you know that this isn't about me. It's about you. By labors, by hard work. The second one on the list there, sleepless nights. In another place, he's talking about the things that he bears. This is also in 2 Corinthians 11. And he adds at the end of the list, and when the church suffers, I suffer. He says, and when, when somebody, you know, steps into a church and causes pain, I feel the pain. When he adds sleepless nights here, here's what it's like. He cares for the churches he's planted. He hears what's going on, and he worries about them, and he prays about them. He has sleepless nights because of them, okay? He burns the midnight oil because of what he's doing. And then finally, fasting. In fact, this is another thing we see in the book of Acts that was part of Paul's practice. That when he didn't know where God was taking him or when he didn't know how to address an issue or when he just wanted to realign himself with the will of God, he would fast. But what, what is it about these three? They're self-inflicted. Okay, so he has difficulties in his circumstances, he bears the mistreatment of others, and he makes intentional choices against his comfort and health, because he's devoted to this. Now, I just, like I said in my prayer earlier, I want to recognize we may not be able to tick all these boxes this morning, and I don't think you should necessarily feel guilty because nobody's ever punched you in the face for bringing up Jesus. But I will tell you that Jesus makes clear that this is the same in kind for all Christians, even if it's not the same in grade. Jesus says, in this life, you will have tribulations. He says, if they rejected the master, why wouldn't they reject the servant? In fact, he puts it the most clearly in his invitation to follow him when he says, follow me, take up your cross, and die daily. What is it in Paul's life that changes these things so that he puts up with some, so that he puts himself in the line of the mistreatment of others, so that he chooses against the grain of his own comfort? As much as those first two lists are striking, it's the third one that gets under me. It's the third one that convicts me. Because I am so comfortable, and I love being comfortable. But Paul intentionally makes choices against his comfort. He gets up in the middle of the night. He refuses to eat. Here's the thing. 
when you encounter Jesus Christ, when you receive the gospel, it changes the way you think about these things. This is one of the changes that we need to talk about this morning. It changes the way you view difficulty. And there's some clear ways it doesn't change it. Okay, first off, it doesn't, clearly, it doesn't remove difficulty from your life. And that needs to be said. Because every once in a while, we get it in our head or we hear from other people that what Jesus does in our life is just hermetically seal us off from all pain. Jesus is just some sort of great opioid that makes life easy and happy. And it's a super ironic position to hold. Because at the heart of the gospel is a brutal death. And when we look at Paul's ministry, when we look at those who followed Jesus the closely, the 12 that he chose, who spent three years with him and what happened to their lives, none of them make it out alive. Only one dies of old age, according to church tradition, and he dies in exile. It's not that they didn't have difficult lives. It's also, it's also not that they were given some sort of superhuman strength that made this difficulty impossible. So it's not just an opioid, it's also not some sort of anesthetization. They feel these things. Paul bears these marks in his body and in his spirit. Life is hard. A few chapters earlier, in chapter 1, Paul talks about what life is like psychologically in this suffering. And he says, during this period of time, I bared in my body the sentence of death. He felt like he was just on death row. Any minute now, it's all going down. And he felt it. He felt it so deeply. This is what he says. He says, in chapter 1, verse 2, the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life ourselves. I'd rather not live. That's how Paul responded to these things at times. The point, though, the thing that we see in this passage is not that he was kept from these things. It's not that these things no longer hurt or mattered. It's that they were worth it. That's why he uses the word that he uses at the beginning. Look again at verse 4. It's, As servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance. Now, if you have a translation this morning that says patience, that's fine. But for us, in English, patience usually means something passive. We're just sitting and waiting. That's not what endurance is. Okay? If you are patiently sitting on the bench at the gym... That's different than enduring up under the weight that you're holding, right? Do you see the difference there? Endurance is an active strength, not a passive one. But nonetheless, he endures these things. Okay, We only endure for a reason. Even put up with doesn't make sense. He couldn't look at these things and just go, it's just like an annoying toddler, but I'm just, I'm just going to put up with it. That's not the idea here. He endures it because it's worth it, because it's valuable, because it's significant. What is he trying to communicate to this church in Corinth that's become suspicious of his ministry? What's the implication here that he's not saying aloud? I do this for you. I endure this for you. I went through these things so that I could come to Corinth, so that I could tell you what Jesus had done in my life and what he'd done uh, for you, and so that you might know and respond. When he fasts, he does it for them. When he worked with his hands and basically had two full-time jobs, church planter and tent maker, he did it for them. Now, we need to be careful here because this is not just a call to serve and love other people and put them first. What I want to draw your attention to is not the example of Paul I want to draw your attention to the motivation of Paul. I want to help you think about the why he did these things. And the clear Sunday school answer is Jesus, right? But we need to be careful there as well. 
Because it's easy to look at the ministry of Jesus and see it as one of self-sacrifice, which it absolutely is. See it one of loving others, which it is. See, of, see it as one uh, like this, who for other people's sakes takes on hardship and difficulty, and it is. But if we stop at just merely looking at it as an example and just go, Jesus did something to show us the right way to live. Jesus is just a, a picture of the right way. That's why he says, come and follow me, because he put others first, self-sacrificial love. That is what we're all called to. You will miss the most important phrase in all the New Testament. It's the phrase for us. Listen to Ephesians chapter 5. Therefore, speaking to Christians, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Notice here the idea is one of imitation. In fact, it gives us a pretty good illustration. It says, like children do a father. Okay? There's a natural imitation factor that happens between parents and kids. But when he points here to Jesus, he doesn't point to him merely as an example, as a picture, if, as if God just went, man, human beings are just so misbehaving, I'm just going to paint them a picture that they'll understand. I'm going to give them a really good illustration, so I'll send my son, and he'll live like a human so that humans know how they should live. But it says something more significant here. It says not just that he gave himself as an example, but that he gave himself for us. So close, yet so far apart. We are not merely looking at Jesus' examples. In some sense, we are recipients of that sacrifice. In other words, we don't live lives that look like dying like this because Jesus gave us an example of death, but that he died for us. That's the difference. And we could drill down deeper and answer all the why questions of how that impacts, but the thing to recognize here is if you understand what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, if you feel the weight of that sacrifice, not only in its beauty, but also in your need, it will change the way you see hardships in life. If there is something that you're complaining about this morning, maybe you even feel bad about it because it doesn't live up to this roster, the reason you're complaining about it is because you haven't fully and deeply appreciated what happened in the gospel. If there's something that you are afraid of that's keeping you from you, what you're pretty sure God is calling you to do, if you're biting your tongue when you should be speaking, if you're staying out of the line of fire when you should be a peacemaker, it is because you don't understand not just what Jesus did, but what Jesus did for you. But Paul understood those things. He understood them deeply and fully, and they changed his life. Paul comes out of life with a lot of scars and zero regrets. But that's not all. He doesn't just list difficulties as he's making this roster of things that he does so that no one's offended by his ministry. Things that he does on behalf of other people. Look at the second section here. The second section in this passage, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, focuses on character, personal traits, internal things. Not just stuff that he bears externally, but things that he does internally. Look at the list here. In verse 6, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love by truthful speech and the power of God with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left. Remember how these fit in. He's saying these are things he strives for in his life so that people understand the gospel. He's saying these are the things he's devoted his life to so that nobody is stumbled by his ministry. In fact, you could put the opposites in here and see them as stumbling blocks that keep people from seeing Jesus. 
But what I want to draw your attention to this morning is the fact that this list in terms of aspirations, and I'm even going to use the phrase, forgive me for it, of self-improvement, is an odd list. The things on this list are not things that probably made it into our New Year's resolutions. They're not things that you'll find listed in the self-help books. If you could put any stamp on the entire series of self-help from the modern perspective, it's self-actualization. But that's not in this list. In fact, everything in this list is directly geared in a different direction. Look at just the first one, by purity. That's almost become a derogatory term in our time. And honestly, not without reason. Because too often what the church has meant for purity is just too thin and too wasty to be of any real value. When Paul says here by purity, he's not even merely talking about sex. It's talking about something significantly more broad, but he says he's devoted his life to no impurities. As if you could just hold him up to the light and there's no, no mars, no marks, no holes, no falseness. The second one, he says, by knowledge. What does Paul mean by knowledge here? Well, because he's writing to the Corinthian church, we know what he doesn't mean. Back in 1 Corinthians, he actually warns them about their constantly being impressed by knowledge. And he says, when I came, I intentionally determined to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. He didn't want his brainy credentials to be the basis of their faith. He didn't want them to go, well, we believe in Jesus because Paul's a smart guy and he believes in Jesus. So that's not what he means by knowledge here. Clearly what he means by knowledge, in fact, it was in the quote I just gave you, determined to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. What is it that he feels is essential to know? Is it how to win friends and influence people? Does he feel the need to exegete his culture? Is he up on all of modern psychology? Now, I know all of those are anachronistic. None of those are actually things he could have done in his time. But by knowledge, he means here knowing the depths of the gospel. One of the things that I love about Paul's ministry, he bleeds Bible. This is easy for us to miss because the Old Testament's a really big book, and of all of your Bible, it's probably the most foreign. But he is constantly speaking in illustrations drawn from the Old Testament, quoting the Old Testament, building his foundation of what he's about to say on what happened in the Old Testament. Paul studies the scriptures. Knowledge. Not just any knowledge, but really knowing who this God is. John Wesley said, let me be a man of one book. He said, because if God has revealed himself to us in a book, let me have it. Let me read it. Let me drink it deeply. Let it shape my life. Paul was a man of one book. That's what he means here by knowledge. Purity, knowledge, patience. It's something he sought after, something that he chose. What does patience imply? It implies that you let people not be what they should be. It implies that you don't respond as people deserve. It implies that you actually sacrifice how you should be treated to sustain and maintain the relationship. Patience. Genuine love. We don't have time, but just ponder the fact that he feels the need to add the word genuine there. Not just any love. Not just love by any definition. The real thing. He's devoted to it, to discovering it, to walking into it, in it, understanding it. As he continues here, I guess we missed two there, I apologize. Before genuine love is kindness and the Holy Spirit. Kindness, I'm going to say, is self-evident, but it's odd there that he puts the Holy Spirit on the list. Every other one is a character trait, 
and then it's just thrown in here, and the Holy Spirit. In fact, some older translators were going, maybe he meant a holiness of spirit. But that'd be an incredibly rare usage from a person who usually would capitalize the H and the S on Holy Spirit. Okay, he uses it here as a noun. He probably means the Holy Spirit, but he's devoting himself to experiencing and understanding exactly what it is when Jesus says, I will send you the helper. The Holy Spirit, he continues on, genuine love, and notice the next one is by truthful speech. It strikes me this morning that those two are not just on the same list, but side by side. Truth and love. Together, not in tension, not in conflict, side by side. Because when love is love, it will be truthful. And when truth is lacking love, when we're talking from a Christian perspective, then it's not the whole truth. But he's devoted to speaking truth. He continues on here and he says, the power of God. That's the most important one on this list. Okay, we looked at the why of the first one. Why does he endure difficulty? Because Christ died for him. How does he change in his character? By the power of God. You see, of all the list, even if you could change the Holy Spirit, this is the one that Paul can't do. It's a confession of need, not accomplishment. It's a recognition that the way we change in our Christian life is through the enablement of God and not through our own striving. Okay? Once again, worlds apart. But the deeper you know Jesus Christ and the deeper you allow him to save you, the more this will be what you look like. But for Paul, he strove for these things. What are the changes you most want to see in your life? What are the things that you think about the most in terms of self-improvement? Where are the places where you feel this is where I'm going and growing and are devoting yourself to? Because Human beings, in general, can't settle with who we are, which is good, because we're not that great. So you're devoting your energy somewhere, for some reason, somehow, to get ahead, to make a name for yourself, whatever it is, to deal with this embarrassing blemish of a character failure. Paul's list is all organized under one purpose, that I might know him and bring others to know him. Look at the last list. The last list is all of these two-term sets. This and that. Not this, but that. Notice the first two just as an illustration there in verse 8. Through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise. What does that speak of? It speaks of stability despite reputation. Whether people think highly or lowly of Paul, it's irrelevant to the issue at hand. Through slander and praise, whether they speak well of Paul or criticize him, he's stable. Now, honestly, for many of us this morning, we probably want that. That sounds like a good thing. Some of us can look at our lives and we know that too often we are swayed by how people react to who we appear to be. In fact, one of the striking things about the list that follows this is that many people today would settle for the reputation at the cost of the reality. That's what we call hypocrisy, right? We go, as long as people see me as a generous person, then I don't really need to be generous. As long as people see me as an upright citizen, then that's enough for me. It doesn't matter. What we see in this final list is an absolute change in perspective. It's what the New Testament means when it contrasts the world with Christian perspective, whenever it talks about the world. And so it says here, let's look at the list following. We are treated as imposters, and yet we are true. Paul is so confident he's on the right path, it doesn't change despite the fact that everybody sees it as evidence he's on the wrong one. Basically, when he says treated as imposters here, we could put the word heretic in there. He says, everyone sees us as a heretic, but we are true. He continues on. 
verse 9, as unknown and yet well-known. A stranger. And yet somebody knows him so significantly that it's enough for stability. As dying and behold we live. He's not just saying here, people keep hearing that I'm dead, but I'm actually still alive. What's that quote from Mark Twain? The... the reports of my death are severely exaggerated, right? That's not what Paul is saying here. He's not just saying, surprise, I'm still alive. He's saying, this is the life. Everybody looks at Paul like it's a living death, and he says, no, it's a dying life. The perspective is different. He continues on, and he says, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful and yet always rejoicing. People would look at Paul's life and go, man, I bet he's miserable. He seems to have such a sad life. And he doesn't say, no, there's some joy in it. There's some ounces of happiness. He says, yet always rejoicing. And then he finishes and he says, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. What is this whole first column of things looking. That's the world's perspective. When they assess Paul's life, these are the standards, and he fails in every way. Paul, you've got no money, you've got no safety, you're not respected anywhere, you're constantly in pain and in danger. And Paul says, yeah, but that's only one way to look at it. He says, if you look at it from my perspective, I'm living the high life. I'm truly known by God. I have absolutely everything. I'm full of reasons to rejoice. What's the difference here? You see, one of the things that God does in Jesus Christ is he pulls back the curtain. He shows the world not as it merely appears, but as it really is. And in doing so, he condemns all the things we pine after. Paul has already said this in 2 Corinthians. Just a second. Let me see if I can find it. I should have written this one down. I'll just have to paraphrase. Just a few chapters earlier, he says this. He says, for this current world is passing away. Take the roster of the world's approval list, the things that make you valuable and significant. How many of those things are eternal? How many of those things will survive your death or the death of your fans? How many of things, when everything is set right and the gospel of the kingdom is fully fulfilled and Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords and every knee bows and every tongue confess, how many of those things will be significant at all? See, what I mean when I say that Jesus pulls back the curtain is he shows the emptiness of pursuits apart from God. But he also shows the incredible reality of the fulfillment of following him. Jesus warned that those who follow him should count the cost. Paul says it too. He says in Philippians, I counted everything as dung in comparison to knowing him. You have to do the math. And it's not just to know if you have enough to follow Jesus. It's not just to know what you signed up for, although those things are important. It's to understand the depth of the worth of Jesus Christ. Jesus told a parable about a man who was walking through a field and discovered a tremendous treasure in it so that he sold everything he had to buy the field. Now that would be a beautiful picture of what Jesus has done in the gospel. He's given everything for us. But it's also a clear picture of what we find in the gospel that changes not just if we're willing to suffer, not just how we devote our lives in terms of character. It changes our perspective on this question What is the good life? What is a life worth living? What is valuable? How do I see worth in other people? 
The point is this. Paul doesn't just lay these things out and say, look, you should think different of, of me because look at the things that I've done for you. He says, look at the incredible value of the life that God has called me to. He's not gritting his teeth and white-knuckling it through his Christian life. He really believes that this is good. For the pagan world, when a conqueror like Rome came in, they would go to the temples because the temples is where the money was. And they would open up the holiest places in the temples and they would find at its center their God. And it was striking when they conquered the Jews and came into the holy place and found the ark, a place where a God should be and no God. But the significance of Christianity is even deeper. Because at the heart of it is the cross. These last two worlds, Martin Luther contrasted them in his ministry. He, like Paul, knew what it was like to suffer, knew what it was like to be labeled a heretic, knew what it was like to be misunderstood, and yet devoted himself to the truth, and it wasn't easy. He struggled tremendously with depression. His health was bad, and that's eventually what took his life. But he contrasted in this way. He said there's two theologies, a theology of glory and a theology of the cross. And the theology of glory, which is what he saw in the Catholic Church of his day, he said, a theology of glory says, God is most glorified in me when I'm most glorious. And so when I am famous, then God is famous. When I am capable, then it's a, you know, a manifestation of God's goodness. He says, the greatest act of worship to the theology of glory is a spectacle. He says, but when we look at the New Testament, when we look at the greatest act of worship in all human history, we find shame. We find disgust. We find pain. He said, and yet, only the theology of the cross is truly glorious. Because what is behind that pain? The glorious God taking on human flesh, enduring the shame and despising it nonetheless experiencing pain and suffering. There is no resurrection without the cross. And if you read the New Testament carefully, that's true of your life as well. The perspective of Paul was drastically changed. He had devoted himself to ticking all the right boxes a Jew of Jews, a Pharisee nonetheless, devoted to the law, you know, persecuting the church to drive this out so that I would be known as Paul the Zealous, right? And when he meets Jesus on the road to Damascus, that whole value system shifts. It changes. And I just want to point out to you that for many of us, that probably has happened. But the old views creep in. The habits stick around. The attractions of this world, the glittering offerings that are around us, the culture which is like a flowing river, we feel the tide and the pull of all those things. That's all true. Why was it different for Paul? Because the focal point and the meditation and the constant place he returned to, don't misunderstand me, Paul constantly fell short in repentance. Paul's life was one of, like every Christian life, of walking backwards and recognizing more and more his shortcomings, his failures, his not living ups. But at the heart of Paul's gospel was a God who died in his place. Let's pray.
God without the truth of the story the gospel tells of Jesus being the very son of God and dying and three days later raising to life and demonstrating that before many witnesses. Without that, Paul's life doesn't make any sense. It's hard to explain. Even the church in Corinth didn't always understand what it meant. But I pray the same for our life. That if Jesus isn't alive, that our life wouldn't make any sense. That it would seem unlikely and even impossible. That people may be able to reject us, but not our devotion. not believe us, but not reject our sincerity. That they would be able to look through the cracks in the earthen vessels we call our body and see the glory of God. And I pray for all the places where the allurement of the world still has hold, where our attention is drawn to these other things, where we're off course or distracted, where we really feel like living through for our own glory is going to accomplish anything, God, I pray that you would just pull back the veil afresh. That where we have false and unsatisfying dreams, those dreams would be shattered. And where we have fear, those fears would be overcome. Just last week, Paul said, for the love of Christ compels us. And I pray that we also would be compelled. And I lift up anyone here who's not yet a Christian. And I ask that they would look at these lives, that they would think through these things. I pray, Lord, that you would show them who you are. And I ask that they would be able to count the cost as well, to see what Christianity truly is and why it's truly worth it. And for all of us this morning, God, I ask that you would just continue to reveal yourself to us. But as you've already done that in the most profound way, as recorded in the scriptures on a day where Jesus hung on a cross, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to center our vision around that reality, that the crux of our lives would be the cross of Christ. Jesus' name we pray. Amen.